Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Jocelyn Medawar, legendary English teacher at Harvard Westlake. In this episode, Jocelyn speaks about the magic of finally teaching in person again, how to build a community of both levity and trust within her English classrooms, and also the art of assembling an effective college recommendation letter. During our conversation, I reference a 2019 email from a Dartmouth admission officer who took the time to thank Jocelyn directly for the way her letter captured a student's candidacy, making her feel, quote, lucky, end quote, that the student was considering Dartmouth. Jocelyn also speaks about growing up in Los Angeles, the life-changing influence of various teachers at Immaculate Heart High School, before attending Stanford and then finding herself a teacher at Westlake just one year before the Harvard-Westlake merger. Now a teacher here for more than 30 years, Jocelyn expresses profound gratitude for being part of the Harvard-Westlake community. Not only for the great joy and amusement she experiences with students each day, but also for the support she has felt in times of tragedy, including following the death of her late husband, Dan, who passed away in 2013 at just 49. Jocelyn Medawar on teaching and laughter. This is The Supporting Cast. Jocelyn Medawar, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for being here. And I know you are not only a kind of legendary Harvard Westlake teacher, and we want to get to that, but you have been so kind in your feedback about the supporting cast. And I know you're a listener. And so I just first off, I just want to say thank you for being a listener and for all the kind things you've said about this series. Well, thank you for doing it. And I'm so glad I stumbled on it. It really helped get me through the pandemic. I'd go out and take a walk almost every day and I had episodes to catch up on. And I just, I listened to every single episode and I just, I just loved it. But I really want to get to you. We are at a time where Harvard Westlake masks are now strongly encouraged, but not required. And so we're in this sort of new era of the pandemic. First, just how are you doing personally at this unique time in the pandemic? I'm doing really well, actually. I'm not going to lie, seeing the students for the first couple of days, most of them with their masks off, Mm. has been a little bit unnerving. But it's also exciting, and yeah. I feel like it's pointing the way forward. I'm personally still wearing my mask through spring break just out of an abundance of caution, but it, it feels good. It's good to see the kids feeling freer, and they look happy, and it's wonderful to, to see their faces. I think we're moving in a good direction, and this is a good place right now. Yeah, my, I guess my first question is about that sort of teaching during the pandemic, because this year students are back on campus, of course, but they've been masked. And so while it's wonderful to have them back, uh, particularly peer-to-peer, um, not only in the classroom, but to, for them to be around their friends, you haven't been able to kind of see their faces. You haven't been able to see maybe the smiles or those sort of visual cues from their faces as a teacher. But of course, what happened before that, they were all virtual, but you could see their faces. So I guess I, I'm curious about kind of the cost benefit of virtual teaching with a cleared face versus in-person teaching with a masked one? That's a really good question. 
For me, there's no contest. I would much rather be in person, even with masks, Hmm. because you hear laughter. You Hmm. see the students interacting with each other, and there's an energy in the room. And of course, I want to see their faces, but there's just nothing like being in person. And you can always have class outside can always talk to students outside. A lot of my student meetings have happened outdoors. You go sit at a table. So it really has just been the formal classroom setting where we're all masked. And I just, there's just nothing like the energy of the kids in the room. I do see what you're saying. You know, I did appreciate being able to see their faces with the online learning, but you couldn't hear them laugh. They were on mute and some of them were just really out of it and I don't blame them. So I I will take in-person masked any day. And I assume it's also helpful just the physical space of the classroom, you know, for you as a teacher to walk around and use parts of a whiteboard or to use that space yourself rather than sort of the confinement of a screen. Absolutely. You know, you asked how I was doing personally, and I can tell you much better because I actually had some terrible sciatica that developed from just sitting for so long every day looking at the screen. And I forgot, even if I got up and walked at the end of the day, it didn't prevent whatever it was that triggered the sciatica from setting in. It was just from not being able to just get up and move around a classroom or just walk around a campus. Mm -hmm. Um, It really did take its toll. So yeah, absolutely. Just being able to move around a classroom and interact in that way just makes all the difference. I'll take the mask over the Zoom any day. I guess it's worth asking you feeling maybe a sense of a bit of isolation, also some physical pain during the time of the pandemic. Were there people around that helped you or gave you a sense of community during that time, other than, of course, the supporting cast and your earbuds as you're <laughs> as you're taking a walk around your neighborhood? Well, yeah, a- absolutely. My husband, Jeremy Michelson, was yep. teaching you know, in the room right next door, so we could debrief and commiserate every day. And and I appreciated my department yeah. and my friends, but especially just being able to interact with other teachers when we could all just talk about what this incredibly odd and unlooked for experience was like. But I was very, 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 very aware that I was really blessed to have a teacher with me in the house. And we could, at yeah. the end of every day, we could have dinner and just sort of debrief and process. Changing gears a bit, I'm really curious to talk to you about college recommendation letters. And the the reason I want to ask you about that is not because we're crazy college-obsessed Harvard-Westlake. We're trying to kind of rid ourselves of that moniker, I think. But this is a unique situation with you because there was an email that was received by the school from a Dartmouth admission officer. And it was about a letter of recommendation that you had written on behalf of a Harvard-Westlake student. And this is one of those moments, you know, Rick Commons will pull this letter out at a donor dinner or something and people will grasp for their checkbooks because it's it kind of shows how our teachers really know students and go above and beyond. But this is the letter from a Dartmouth admission officer. Uh, Dear Jocelyn, I wanted to take a quick moment and thank you personally for your recommendation on behalf of, I'm just going to use the name Luke, as I am sure especially as an English faculty member at HW, you write hundreds of recommendation letters. I wanted to pause and say your letter was such a pleasure to read and beautifully captured his candidacy. While it is certainly too early to predict any outcomes, and I appreciate you keeping this between us, well, now the the cat's out of the bag with the podcast, 
your letter has served him incredibly well and made me feel so lucky that he is considering Dartmouth. So what do you think when you get an email like that from an Ivy League admission office? It's it's very gratifying because when you do spend so much time and you write a lot of letters, sometimes you do wonder if they're going into a void and, you know, for all the time that goes into them during summer, at least for me, I write them during summer, hmm. um, for all the time that goes into them, who's at the other end? And to get a human being writing to you and saying, this makes a difference, this helps me understand this candidate, it's really, it's really wonderful to be reminded that there are people at the other end who are paying attention they want to understand the kids who are applying. They want to know who they are. And if my letter can help them do that, it's wonderful to, to have that feedback. Well, it's also, I'm sure, gratifying for a student to know that you're paying that type of attention, you know, to them. I mean, how, how do you try to form relationships with students that kind of go beyond just the lesson in the class? Like, how, how do you develop all these other strands or context to kind of provide to an admission office? In one sense, I'm very well served being an English teacher because mm -hmm. just embedded in the discipline is talking about life every single day. We're talking about what makes human beings tick and students share, they share their opinions about the texts and they share their stories. So every day in class, I have the chance to learn something about someone. But I also do try, you know, certainly in my one-on-one -on -one meetings with students, we might talk about a paper and I learn a whole lot about the way their mind ticks in an academic way, but then we might just kick back and talk about whatever it is interests them. And I try to remember those things. Who collects glass animals or who, you know, <laughs> who lives or dies by Dungeons and Dragons or a sport or drama or musicals or, or whatever it is. So I do have those chances. I also try to give some writing assignments that allow for personal reflection. It's not all analytical essays. There's always some moments or ways that I can actually collect some thoughts from students that I hang on to so that I can just craft the best letter possible. And that's why, again, that email is so gratifying because we're told it's an important piece of a student's portfolio, their file. And so it's really nice to get confirmation that it is. Well, I actually have because Rick forwarded me not only that email, I have the recommendation <laughs> oh, that <great. laughs> the admission officer was referencing. And I want to read a small, I could choose any passage, but I'm going to choose this small one because I think it illuminates what you're talking about. And I hope I'm not embarrassing you here, but it's okay. um, here it is. This is, um, quote, I'm fortunate enough to be Luke's AP English literature teacher for his senior year, but I met him last year several times. I didn't know his name but he was, quote, book boy, end quote, to me. Luke would come in periodically to talk to his 10th grade teacher, and his enthusiasm was just infectious. Any teacher who happened to be free when Luke stopped by would look up, hollow-eyed from the drudgery of grading, and join in a communal love fest about literature. Teachers who don't even like each other much would pull up a chair to join the conversation. Luke was a Pied Piper, pulling us in, reminding us that we became teachers hoping for students like him, the ones who read because they trust their stressful lives to a good book, knowing they'll come out the other end enlightened, 
safe and strong. End quote. Pretty good. Wow. Yeah. I'd accept. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, what can I say? The the student inspired me. I mean, I you can't. Yeah. You know, no. Can't make that up. You right? can't make that up. Every writer has to have material. And how lucky am I? And privileged am I to be working with these amazing students who can inspire me to write that. It's the students who make it happen. What do you love about teaching? Is it that? I do. I, I love sharing something that means a lot to me, my reading life. I mean, my reading life is it's part of my identity, and I get to come to school and share it every single day. What do you I, mean by your reading life? Um, since I was a kid... I think the first big book I ever read was The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle. That was, you know, over like 20 pages. And I remember just being transfixed and taken away somewhere else. And I've always been a reader and it's sustained me through all different moments in my life. I feel like reading has just enriched me, made me a better person, made me a more moral person. And I get excited that I get to share that with young people. And I think high school is the sweet spot, right? Where students are in this place where you can at least model for them what it means to devote yourself to something that you love. And of course, I want them to develop wonderful reading lives, but they don't have to. Not everyone has to love reading great fiction, but I hope they walk away saying, wow, it's really important to love something the way Ms. Medawar loves what she loves. So that's what I mean by sharing my reading life. It's sharing something that makes me tick. And I hope all my students find something that makes them tick in that way. It's the luckiest job in the world in that sense. That's what I, what I love about teaching. So before getting to kind of how you found yourself to teaching, I'd love to go back to kind of the beginning of Harvard-Westlake and you starting, I guess, just before the merger of Harvard and Westlake. Right. So when you came to whatever version of the school it was then, kind of what was the version of the school? And take us through those first few years. I was hired by, I think it was being called Harvard-Westlake at that point. The merger mm. had been announced, but I was hired to teach at Westlake, and it was the last year of all girls. But we all knew the merger was coming. So there were that whole year was planning and preparing for the following year. So it was really exciting to be in on something that was happening from the ground up. And this was the 1990-1991 yes, school year? Would yes, that be right? yeah. I believe so, yes. And it was exciting and it was nerve-wracking for a lot of people. I was lucky that I had no tie to either Harvard or Westlake. I mean, I knew about the schools because I grew up in LA, but I had no specific allegiance or tie. I had nothing except my interest in being in on something from the ground up, building something from the ground up. And those first few years were really, they were fun. It was sort of the Wild West. We were creating a school as we went with Tom's vision in mind. And we had Mimi Flood and on, on the upper school, I didn't know her yet, and Debbie Reed and Tom at the helm of building this school. And just the word that keeps coming to mind is just how exciting it all was to work as teams and to figure out how to sort of steer this new school 
It was gratifying. It was exciting. It was really energizing. But you were coming from the Westlake side. I mean, as we know now, there were alumni of Westlake. Um, well, alumni now. They were students at Westlake during the sort of late 80s, early 90s, who were not happy that a merger with Harvard was going to take place. Can you speak to kind of the mood of the Westlake student body and their mood at the time about all of these, in, in your words, exciting changes, but to them might not have seemed so exciting? Sure. You know, I, I went to an all-girls school myself. I went to Immaculate Heart High School in Hollywood. And if it was my school that had been going co-ed, I think I would have yeah. been incredibly unhappy, uh, very unhappy. So I understand that there were a lot of, especially longtime Westlake teachers and students who I think were very unhappy. And so I respect and I understand that. But in the end, I think we've created something that was greater than the sum of its parts. And um, I hope everyone's made peace with it now. But in those early days, sure, that's part of the reason why I call it the Wild West, because there were a lot of wild feelings um, yeah. coming out of the woodwork. I was just happy that I could be a neutral person because I wasn't invested in that. There was one moment that really sort of crystallized what was going on and all the different feelings that people were having. I was teaching in my classroom. I was teaching. It was either my seventh or eighth grade English class. The door was open. My students were writing. And a young man, a ninth grader, so one of the boys, it was the first year of the merger. So one of the boys who had come over from the Harvard School and who knew he only had one year at the Westlake campus and he didn't seem to particularly didn't want to be there. He was touring a family around and he was pointing out different classrooms. And he said, yeah, these are the English classrooms. And he said, the walls are pastel because, well, you know, this is really a girl school. Um, <laughs> and that to me just sort of, I, you know, I just thought that was, that was funny. And it just sort of expressed a lot about what a lot of people were feeling and all the, the mixed feelings that students and adults were having. Yeah. So that's one of my best merger stories. And a sense of humor about it all too. And a sense yeah. of humor about it. Yeah, absolutely. Was there leadership at that time that you looked to that made you, even though it was the Wild West and that was exciting, it kind of gave you the confidence that it would work out? Was it Tom? Was it Mimi? Was it people like that? Like, how did you kind of stick with it and go, oh, I think this is going to work out. Yeah, the first five years I was at the middle school, so I didn't know Mimi yet because she was at the upper school, but certainly Tom, always, always and forever Tom at the helm. And Debbie Reed, once she became head of the middle school, there was just someone at the helm who had this guiding vision for us. So I always look to her, Elizabeth Gregory, certainly at admissions, and just my colleagues. I, we were all really united in saying, let's build something great. I'm going to circle back to Harvard Westlake a little bit later, but I want to go back to you. So you were born in Los Angeles, is that right? Yes, I was. And whereabouts? I was born at St. Joseph's in Burbank, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you want to get really specific. I grew up in Hollywood and Westwood. My family moved to Westwood when I was maybe five or six, and I attended St. Paul the Apostle School up through eighth grade, and then Immaculate Heart High School for high school. Immaculate Heart, though, you were living in Westwood, and Immaculate Heart is over in Hollywood. Is that right? It is. And so what was the impetus to, to go to school across town? Yeah, the, uh, my mom went there. 
Ah. Uh, she had attended Immaculate Heart College when it existed and Immaculate Heart High School. And most of my friends went to Marymount. That was from St. Paul's. The girls went to Marymount. The boys went to Loyola for the most part. Yeah. But a few of us went to other places. And I wanted to go across town to Immaculate Heart because I wanted to go where my mom had gone. And it was a special place. It was an inspiring place. It had an art and drama department that was inspired by the famous artist nun sister Corita Kent who you can read a whole lot about her, but she was on the cover of Time magazine as the sort of rebel nun who took on Cardinal McIntyre back in the day. So I wanted to go to this place that had a history in my family and a history in LA, and it was a different place to go. It meant a lot to me to be there. For those who don't know, this is where I think Meghan Markle went to, uh, (laughs) the Duchess of Sussex, I guess, went to... uh... Immaculate Heart. She did. She did. You would have to talk to uh, Camille DeSantos in the dean's office, mm-hmm. who was at Immaculate Heart right around when Meghan Markle oh, was there. Oh, interesting. Got uh, it. She, she might have some stories. And were there, I know that this was a very meaningful educational experience for you at Immaculate Heart. Were there teachers or mentors at that time that were influential to you? There are so many people who come to mind, and I would, I'll probably leave important people out. But Carmen Hill in the English department, Carmen Hill really inspired me to want to become an English teacher. She was the most alive and vibrant English teacher I've ever had. And then to complement her style, Marion Sharples, who had been Sister Marion a while before that, she was an English teacher who really brought in a respect for discipline and for the really more exacting process of learning how to write and write well. Carmen was the inspiration, and Sister Marion was like the put your ass on the seat of your chair and write the darn thing um, <laughs> kind of teacher. You need both. You need both. And between the two of them, I think I was like, this is what I want to do. And then I think someone else. And did you know at the time that that's what you wanted? I mean, was it that clear in your mind? Oh, I want to do something like these two women are doing? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, when I was in high school, I used to dream about coming back to be a high school English teacher if I didn't land some big part on stage and become like the next Meryl Streep. (laughs) (laughs) I also wanted to be the next Meryl Streep, like a movie and a stage actor. But it became pretty clear that wasn't going to happen. But uh, I actually really did. In high school, I wanted to be a high school English teacher. And you were about to mention another teacher before I In the drama department, there was a teacher named Tony Brzezzi who taught me how to have a sense of humor about myself, never to take it all too seriously, to take the discipline seriously, but not to take myself too seriously. He had the best sense of humor. And he taught me to have a sense of humor about myself, which I think is a saving grace. And important in teaching as well, I would assume? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, you're standing in front of teenagers all day. If you take yourself too seriously, they're going to eat you alive. You're doomed. That's right. (laughs) You're doomed. And it was also all girls. I mean, I know that this goes back to the kind of the gender piece of you being at Westlake and then the merger taking place. Was the all girls aspect of that school, was that also central to you, and, and I should mention, Harvard Westlake is a proudly multi-gender school. We don't say co-ed anymore. We say multi-gender school. Mm-hmm. But what was unique about your school being single gender? I'm really grateful that for those crucial years of adolescence that I was in school with all girls. It taught us to be assertive, 
to be comfortable with ourselves, to be able to navigate the world of burgeoning relationships and romances and all of that, but not to have it on campus in our face. I think it really taught us to be mindful and conscious of ourselves as young women with something to say and something to contribute without a lot of the easy insecurities and unfortunate insecurities that young women can develop. And I I felt so well prepared for college, to go off to college and be in a multi-gender community. I felt very well prepared for that being from an all-girls school. Do you think about that now teaching in a multi-gender school? That is there a conversation you try to have with the young women in your class with this in mind? Or do you kind of think it's a different time in a different place and in a different school? I think it's a little bit of a different time, a different place and a different school in some ways. Yeah. But I think the conversations that I have with my students one-on-one, often, especially with young women, if they want to talk about certain things that are pressures that they feel, things that they feel they can't address, perhaps in a multi-gender setting, I feel well-equipped to have those discussions. Are there spaces at Harvard-Westlake for those conversations to happen? Do you find those spaces? I think so. I hope students of all genders feel they have a space to talk about those matters, whether Mm -hmm. it's with a teacher or with a counselor, with each other. And I do think depending, obviously, depending on what text we're teaching, sometimes those things just naturally come up. And if you're lucky enough to have a class of kids where the chemistry is really good, sometimes you can really have those conversations. There's sort of a community of of trust that's built in that classroom. Absolutely. You know, again, a hallmark of Harvard-Westlake is the one-on-one conversations that students and teachers can have because whether it's the old schedule or the new schedule, there's space to have those one-on-one conversations and students know that they can talk to their teachers. So, you know, I hope that the young women feel that hearing anything about my experience in an all-girls school can perhaps benefit them if they're wrestling in any way. I hope my experience can be helpful to anyone and it's not, not just girls, to all students. I'm curious about the sort of those classes where that community of trust is really built and you feel like you can say everything. How do you how do you build that? Is it a little bit of chance? Is it a little bit of the alchemy of the combination of students that particular year or, or have you employed techniques over the years that help to kind of cultivate that? I mean, I I hope I have I think I do have some techniques to hopefully foster that community of trust, whether it's just hopefully my ease with myself and where I am in my life. I hope that just sets an example for students to be at ease in the room. The sense of humor piece, right? Comes the in sense of too. humor piece. Hopefully it's just the feeling that the classroom is a warm and inviting place. Mm-hmm. I try to be respectful of students who don't feel comfortable speaking up, but I also try to find other ways to draw them out and and to perhaps say something every now and then that makes them feel, you know, just letting them know that even if they're not comfortable speaking up, they're a vital part of the class. Yeah. But I also can't lie. There is a certain amount of just luck and chemistry that is involved. I mean, sometimes it can be as simple as when the class meets in the day. Yeah. If it's that block seven class, there are just days where <laughs> everyone... Tired. Every, yeah, they're just, they're looking at you like, we're trying, 
we're trying, Ms. Medawar. We're going to try for you, but man, this is tough. Or, or maybe it's me. Maybe someday, you know, yeah. I'm just like, I've got nothing to give. And then they rally. And then the students rally for you. So I want to get back. So you graduate from Immaculate Heart. And how do you find yourself to Westlake School from there? I was lucky enough to be able to go off to Stanford for college. Mm -hmm. And those were just amazing years. I loved my college experience. I knew from the beginning that I was going to major in either English or drama. I think I actually declared a drama major first. It was that Meryl Streep fantasy kicking in, right? And then I thought, my parents will kill me. They're sacrificing so much to send me to Stanford. And I just can't declare drama and tell them I want to be an actress. So I went, I declared English. And then even when I declared English, I told my mom, I said, Mom, I did it. I declared English as my major. And there was this pause on the phone. <laughs> and she said, um, can you take some business classes with that? <laughs> but it all worked out. I stayed at Stanford. I got my master's. And then I came right back and I started teaching at Immaculate Heart. And I taught there for a few years before hearing about the merger that was going to happen between Harvard and Westlake. And at that point, I felt like I had taken and, and received everything from Immaculate Heart that I could, both as a student and a teacher. And I was just ready for something different, ready for an experiment. I was excited by the experiment that was going to happen with the merger of Harvard and Westlake. I thought, I want to be in on that. I just yeah. I want to try and be in on that. And before you knew it, I was being called in and interviewed by the head of the English department at Westlake at that time, Dr. Alan Buster. I think he wanted to see if I had a sense of humor because he, his first line to me was, now let's see, you come from, what's the name of the school? Blessed Comforter? You're at Blessed Comforter now? <laughs> I was like, he must want me to laugh. And, it, and I did. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> so now you've been at Harvard Westlake for... How long? 35 plus years? <laughs> Something like that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I asked sort of what you love about teaching, but what has kept you at Harvard Westlake that long? Oh, that's a really good question. And I'm happy to wax rhapsodic about <laughs> Harvard Westlake. I can't imagine a better fit for me, but also just I think it's a great place to be a teacher. This is a school that supports teachers in ways that I have not heard about at other places. Harvard Westlake has always made me feel so incredibly supported. When I wanted to try different things, when I wanted to try being a dean, Tom Hudnut said, great. And then when I wanted to go to the upper school, it was great. We'll do that for you. When uh, Tom said, hey, all of you deans, you're going to become college counselors. We're going to try this other experiment. I said, great. And then I tried it for several years. And then I realized I really miss teaching full-time English. And Tom said, okay, give me some time. I'll make that happen for you. So I've always felt incredibly supported professionally and personally. I felt incredibly supported when I was going through some really hard times when my dad died. And then when my husband died very young at age 49 of cancer, uh, I could not have been in a more supportive, loving place. Um, so it's it's easy to go on and on about why I've stayed. There's never anywhere else I wanted to be. 
Can I follow up actually on that last piece about you've talked about all, all the laughter and the support and the positive times that you've had at Harvard Westlake, but you've had some tragedy during these years in your personal life as well. Can you talk about particularly when you lost your husband and he was so young, who were the people around you that offered you support during that time? Yeah, that was, he He was diagnosed uh, with pancreatic cancer in 2011 and he died in March of 2013. And for those two years of his illness and the time after he passed away, I, I felt so, so blessed. Everyone from administration, everyone supported me. In my more immediate life, my colleagues in, my, in the English department were so willing to step in and help whenever I needed to be away. And it, it was interesting because people I didn't interact with every day sent me cards and emails, and some of them knew just the right thing to say hmm. where some of my dearest friends sometimes didn't. And yeah. that's fair. We all, I think we all, we all have different ways of being when, when someone dies young, like Dan did at only age 49, I felt a little bit like some people didn't want to be around me or mm. talk to me much because it, and I understood it fed into their own discomfort with the whole idea that something that bad could perhaps happen to them or in their lives. And I understand that. I really do. And so I, you know, I, I didn't hold it against anybody. But what was interesting was the people who came out of the woodwork and especially students. Sometimes students just, they just had the right thing to say. And I couldn't have told you before, this is what I want to hear. But then when a student sometimes just said something to me, I was like, how did that kid know that's exactly what I needed to hear? It was more often the students huh. than even the adults. But really, you know, I'll never forget Gene Heibrick showing up on my doorstep with food. Hmm. Um, yeah. Sharon Cusio and Jay Young. Right after Dan died, I remember Sharon saying, unless you don't want us to come, we're coming over. Hmm. You know, it was, I, I could say a million stories like that. Before getting to some get to know you questions, I want to end on a, a brighter note, which is you said you love to share your sort of reading life with students. Is there a book that you love teaching more than, than any else? And maybe that conjures up some of these kind of vulnerable or interesting conversations with students, maybe more than anything else? One of my absolute favorite books to teach, and I'm teaching it right now, is Brooklyn mm. by Colm, C-O-L-M, Tubin, T-O-I-B-I-N. That novel, I think, it's a beautiful book to teach to seniors because it's about leaving home, mm. but it's also about home and about making important decisions as young people. And it's about dealing with tragedy. Uh, so I think that novel right now is one of my favorite novels to teach because it just, it's so perfect for the audience. And was that turned into a movie with Saoirse Ronan? Is that the same? Yes, that's the story? one. I have seen the movie. I haven't read the book, but it sounds like the book's pretty great. Yeah, that's the one. Plus, I also, I mean, as you know, I'm married now to Jeremy Michelson and it's yes. one of his favorite books too. And we just love talking about it. <laughs> We talk about it. We've taught it. The dinner table. <laughs> yeah. We've taught it several years now, and we still go over scenes we love. 
Wow. Uh, so it's uh, that's the one that comes to mind right now. Well, as you know, there are three get to know you questions at the end of every episode of the Sporting Cast. They relate to Los Angeles, where you grew up. Um, we are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So first, we were just kind of mentioning a movie, but uh, what is Jocelyn Medawar's favorite movie? I've thought about this. I'm a movie buff. There are so many movies. We're in the same Oscar pool each year, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm going to mention three movies that have been with me my whole life. Sure. Uh, like as, far, as long as I can remember. And those three would be Lawrence of Arabia, Casablanca, and The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. What's your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Could be something you and Jeremy make at home or something at a restaurant? Sadly, my favorite L.A. meal doesn't exist anymore, mm. but it would be a hamburger and french fries at Hamburger Hamlet. It was the restaurant growing up that my family went to. We would go, uh, you know, on Sundays after church. We would go there for birthdays. I mean, there were several Hamburger Hamlets around L.A., but it was the Westwood one that was like our spot. Uh, so that doesn't exist anymore. But Right now, even though I'm trying to eat less meat, I think the tomahawk pork chop at Kispaka is my favorite L.A. meal. Where is Kispaka? Kispaka is part of Nancy Silverton's restaurant group. There's Moza. Yes. And right next to it is Kispaka, which ah. is the sort of meat-forward restaurant. Interesting. Cool. Great. Yeah. What is your favorite place in L.A.? I walk in the Hollywood Hills where I live, and there's an overlook off of Sunset Plaza where there's always an amazing view of the ocean. And even when you can't see the ocean, you can see the city. It's pretty spectacular. And what makes that overlook really special is that often hawks fly by right at eye level. So that's my favorite LA spot. My last question is always about parenting advice. And I want to twist it slightly because I am the parent of two daughters. I have a daughter who is almost three and a half and another who is almost nine months old. And we touched on it earlier, but you were part of an all-girls school, and you started at Harvard-Westlake, really on the Westlake side, teaching girls. What advice do you have for me kind of as a dad of girls, either the conversations I should have, the values I should try to instill in my daughters? What's your advice? Oh, you're such a thoughtful person that the first thing I'm going to say is trust your gut, because I'm sure it's, it's going to steer you well. But... If I have anything to say about it, I would say I think it's really important, especially for young women, to learn how to cultivate their own unique voice in the world and to assert it. Mm. The assert part, I think, is often still hard for young women. I think that also I'm going to come back around to inspiring a sense of humor about yourself I think that's really important for girls, especially because, it, it, I mean, it's important for anybody, but I think young people from a very early age, they've developed this sort of idea they have to be perfect. Yeah. And that means perfect grades. And there's some idea of perfectionism that can lead to a lot of anxiety. I'm not going to say that that affect girls more than boys. It is especially relevant for girls, although I do feel it, it's true for all genders. So I, I really do think that inspiring 
in kids a sense of humor about themselves is really important because if you can laugh at yourself and your foibles and your defeats, if you can have a sense of humor about it, you probably have a healthy perspective. Because if you can laugh at yourself, I think it means you know how to celebrate yourself deep down in your bones without that boomerang of self-doubt that can come back and hit you in the face. These days, I I see young people celebrating others, but I think it also comes back at them with some self-doubt. And so... I really just think if you can have a sense of humor about yourself and take your pursuit seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously, I think you'll be on the road to a healthy life. That is great advice. And uh, and laughter has come up many times in this conversation. I mean, you said what's great about being back in person is hearing the laughter of students. Yeah. And so you can, can clearly see how important that's been for you. And I'll, I'll remember that with my daughter. So... Joss Medawar, thank you so much for joining me for the supporting cast. Thank you. 